1: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
2: The 4th of April marked a key date for climate science. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, released the final installment of a trio of reports that comprehensively examine the science of climate change. It's been eight years since the IPCC last published such an assessment. Hundreds of scientists from around the world have ploughed through thousands of peer-reviewed papers and collated their findings into a 3,000-page report. This week, we're going to tell you what you need to know from the climate scientist's latest assessment. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. In today's episode, we're going to dig deep into the conclusions of the new IPCC report and what they mean for our planet. Vijay Vaithi our global energy and climate innovation editor, will be taking the reins today. Hi, Vijay. Hello there. VJ was the host of To a Lesser Degree. That was our podcast on climate change, which we released late last year in the run-up to the COP26 climate summit. Now, VJ, you're going to take over Babbage this week. So, can I ask, are you going to get the To a Lesser Degree band back together? Is that what's happening?
0: That's right. I've brought my bongos, and uh, we're going to have Oliver Morton on bass, and Kat Brahek will be uh, playing a delightful lute. So. <laughs> We're getting together to explore what the latest IPCC report means for all of us. Whether there's any hope of meeting the Paris Agreement targets, as well as how the energy transition is going to be affected by the ongoing war in Ukraine.
2: Okay, these are very serious topics, and I look forward to hearing what you all have to say. So, uh, take it away, VJ.
0: Thanks, Alex. Joining me, without their instruments, unfortunately, are, as I mentioned, Katrine brahik the Economist Environment Editor, and Oliver Morton, our Briefings Editor. Kat, Ollie, it's good to be back with you. What have you been up to since COP26?
3: Hi, VJ. Great to see you. I've been, well, this last week, obviously thinking a lot about the IPCC, and um, it's not all good news. It's pretty depressing, actually.
4: And uh, just to lighten the mood, I've been spending most of my time working on our Ukraine coverage.
0: Well, this is sadly the backdrop for getting our band back together. We may have to play some dirges during the course of this podcast. I do think, though, we should kick off today's episode with a bit of background. As Alok said, the IPCC has just published this important report. But before we get to that, Kat, can you tell us more about the IPCC and what it does?
3: Yeah, so the IPCC is kind of a unique body, really. It's a mashing together of science and politics. It is a UN-backed body, which takes upon itself to review the status of global climate science. And what we've seen between August last year and just last week is the sort of trio of assessment reports that have been published.
0: Oli, why was last week's report a particularly important one?
4: Well, this sort of puts the button on this round of assessments, which began, as Kat said, uh, began to be published last year, but which have been brewing for about eight years. And for the next five, maybe even 10 years, this will be the sort of reference manual that the negotiators and governments around the world, especially the governments that don't have very developed science advice services of their own, this is what those people will be looking at during a decade when crucial decisions will be made. So uh, there'll be a bit more. There'll be a synthesis of these last three partial reports that will come out later this year, and that might sort of try and pull out some particular messages. But this is effectively the science policy, technology, vade mecum, with which we're going to go into the next bit of the future?
3: One thing that's really important is, so Ollie mentioned that policymakers will be digging into this. The IPCC is actually a a political body, right? Each report needs to be approved by the member governments of the IPCC, and that's 195 governments. So ultimately, the message that comes out is a combination of the science consensus approved by government. So they take ownership of these scientific messages, and that's really important in terms of the policy.
0: Now, Kat, you've been reporting on the conclusions of this 3,000-page report. Give us a snapshot. What are the key points?
3: So the key points really are that meeting the Paris Agreement targets, we've talked about these many, many times before, but just to repeat, the temperature targets are to limit global warming to between 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial averages and two degrees. And meeting those targets is increasingly difficult as time goes on. And right now we are, I'd say, on the cusp of a point where the 1.5 degree target Sort of is fading into the distance. So the report doesn't say nigh on impossible, but I think we can say here nigh on impossible to meet that 1.5 degrees target with no overshoot, without going over and then coming back down to 1.5 at some point later in the century. The reason for that relates to basically what climate models tell us is required in terms of emissions over the coming few decades in order to meet those. So, for example, for both the 1.5 and the two degrees target, emissions need to peak before 2025. Now that's obviously just three years away. The context here is that emissions are mostly still growing. The COVID year was a was a sort of unusual dip, but broadly emissions tend to rise year after year. And in fact, the last decade, so between 2010 and 2019, emissions saw the largest decadal rise in human history. So we're not on a path to hitting peak emissions in 2025.
0: Now, you wrote a a cautionary cover story some months ago arguing that on present trends, we're headed towards a three-degree world. Is that still your strong feeling?
3: That is still very much the case, and the numbers in the report basically show that. So if we look at current policies We're headed towards three degrees. You know, there's an error bar around that. It could be somewhere between two and a half to to four. So it could be even higher than that. And the the political promises that were made in the run-up and at COP26 in Glasgow in November do go some way to improving that prospect, but it's really only by a few tenths of a degree. It's not a dramatic difference. So really the message is that those promises, those pledges unless they are hugely increased, are insufficient right now to meet the Paris targets. And in fact, one of the co-chairs of the report on Monday made a really quite dramatic statement when he said, unless governments increase the ambition of their climate pledges between now and the next climate summit, which is in November this year, then come November, the time may be upon us to just say 1.5 is not going to happen.
0: Oli, what do you take away from the report?
4: I do find that sort of rhetoric really quite difficult. What's important is not the government's pledges. It's the actual path of decarbonisation. It's doing more rather than pledging more that has to happen. And I don't see any strong evidence of that doing more. And to do so much more that 1.5 happens, this report makes that seem spectacularly unlikely and almost makes it look like it would be catastrophic in other ways if it did. So if you imagine this decade emitting as much as last decade and then in the 2040s not emitting anything, that's the scale of the project. And I actually don't find peaking in 2025 in itself particularly ludicrous. It's coming down absurdly steeply afterwards that just there is nothing in this report to make one think that that is actually going to happen.
3: Yeah, and the point of this particular report is, in fact, to lay out the things that can get you there. It's full of these socioeconomic pathways that allow the world to actually meet those targets. And there are emissions reductions that can happen in every sector, from energy to transport to buildings to agriculture. But the impression that I came away with was that although there are many, many things that can be done, in order to meet these targets, everything has to be done, all of it. And we just haven't seen that kind of ambition, that kind of change on the scale required, at the speeds required.
4: There's a huge reluctance on the part of almost everyone involved. There is no model that actually suggests that even if you do peak in 2025 you can stay in a, with a good shout at 1.5 degrees all the models that have ever shown that had peaks that are now in our past
3: and then dramatic drops even then
4: yeah absolutely and so it's really hard to actually say this but you know when did everything in the world ever go right consistently for 30 years
0: so i mean it's clear that you know 1.5 degrees is slipping out of our fingers, as it were, if ever it were within our fingers. But even to keep the world below three degrees of warming, much more and more dramatic action is required. We've actually known that for a while. Has the emphasis on what to do changed in this report?
3: The emphasis on what to do in terms of fossil fuels, if anything, has become greater and louder and more shrill. The other thing that maybe has changed is negative emissions. These are methods of sucking CO2 out of the air.
4: I think it's very striking the emphasis that this part of the report, the part on mitigation, puts on coordinated planning, which has been in previous reports, but it's very strongly emphasised here. Coordinated planning and decisions at many scales of governance. When you have to do everything, you also have to do everything in a fairly joined up way. You have to bear in mind what all the other things you're doing are doing to all the other things you're doing, if you see what I mean. There's a many to many problem there. And that does require a lot of planning and coordination. And I think that's a message about the level of interference in the economy that's required to try and do these things that will be unpopular in some places.
0: So this is really a plea to do it with more ambition in a particular direction rather than in a in the jumbled up way we've tended to do things in the past. I think uh, I, I would certainly endorse that. Um, I do want to turn to uh, the negative emissions idea. Uh, Kat, could you give us a quick description of what we mean by negative emissions and, and where this report is taking that particular set of technologies?
3: Yeah, so negative emissions are basically greenhouse gases going from the atmosphere back into the earth, as it were, as opposed to from the earth into the atmosphere when you burn fossil fuels. And there are many different ways of doing this. I think this is a big change between this report and its last edition in 2014. I've actually been talking to Jan Minks about some of these ideas. He's a professor and head of the Mercator Research Institute Working Group on Applied Sustainability Science. And we talked about how you can remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere and also why that's essential.
1: Negative emissions describe situations where we capture CO2 directly from the atmosphere. We have done this uh, for long times by regrowing forests, for example, or by um, capturing CO2 in soils. But um, there are also very new methods that do this, like direct air capture, which are chemical filters that basically capture the CO2 out of the ambient air. Or you could think of uh, bioenergy crops, so grass, wood that is burned in power plants, and that wood or those plants have taken up the CO2 from the atmosphere while they were growing, and then you burn it, the CO2 is released, you capture it again. And you put it into the ground via carbon capture and storage, for example.
3: So the IPCC report that was published last week explored these options in a fair bit of detail. How essential or not are they to keeping warming below two degrees or, or sort of to keeping to the Paris targets of 1.5 to 2 degrees?
1: Yeah, the IPCC is very clear. You need carbon dioxide removal in order to meet the targets. and you can think about it in terms of national policy as well. So many countries have net zero targets and already the term net zero tells us that there is something that remains and something that is compensated. So in terms of emissions concretely, there are some emissions that are really, really hard to reduce and those get compensated by CO2 removals. And that is one reason why we need carbon dioxide removal and negative emissions, but then there are also so-called net negative emission. That means if global emissions have fallen to zero, which you need to meet the targets, then there is often a sustained period where the line falls below zero and there is a net removal of CO2 from the atmosphere. And that is called net negative emissions. And once you do this, you basically pull back temperatures again. And so in a sense, that is often used for buying time in climate policy when we cannot reduce the emissions anymore so quickly and then we need to pull back temperatures later. And that is particularly relevant for the 1.5 degree target.
3: Yeah, and given, let's say, the political challenges to bringing in very stringent climate policy and the the general, I mean, it's not inertia, but the slowness of response to the climate crisis. Would you say then that it's very likely or not very likely or a little bit likely that in the coming decades, we will come to rely on negative emissions?
1: I mean, what I'm saying is we are relying on negative emissions in any case. So we need carbon dioxide removal for meeting the targets because we need to achieve net zero CO2 emissions, and for that we already need negative emissions.
3: Right. So, so for 1.5, it's very likely that we're going to have to compensate for overshoot by drawing CO2 out of the atmosphere. So effectively using negative emissions is a bit of a thermostat.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And if we continue like this, because we are still stuck in the age of fossil fuels, I would say... And if we have another decade like the last decades where we are still growing emissions, then we will be in the same world for the two degree target in which we are today for the 1.5 degree target.
3: So if you had a crystal ball, and I'm aware that we're always asking climate scientists to peer into their non existent crystal balls, but let's say you did, can you give us a view of what? our listeners should expect to see in terms of negative emissions deployment for the next decade.
1: If I have to look into the future, I think we'll mainly see um, land-based options like afforestation, reforestation, forest management, um, biochar, soil carbon sequestration to be scaled. And that's simply for the reason that they are in a better position for this to be done because they are further down the line in terms of the innovation process. But I think what we will also see is a lot of interest in those other more technology-based methods like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, direct air capture, And I think we will see a lot of dynamic in that sector so that there will be a lot of investment in that space, uh, also from the private sector. And I expect a very dynamic development. And I'm myself curious how that will play out in the end. But I think we may be in for some surprises there.
0: Thanks, Kat. Fascinating interview. I want to ask the two of you, is there a significant worry with embracing negative emissions technologies? If we suck too much carbon out of the air, is it like eating too many vitamins or, or, or jogging too much? You know, is there some terrible thing that's going to happen to us?
3: Uh, wouldn't that be a, a pleasant dilemma to, to have, to be honest, Vijay? <laughs> I think I'll take that over what I consider currently to be more likely, which is not having the infrastructure in place when we need it.
0: No, I do hear the argument made by some folks that this is something of a, a distraction or a chimera or the, the more we invest in these things, we'll do less solar or, you know, we'll keep driving too much because we know that there's a direct air capture plant coming around the corner so we can burn all we want. What do you think about those sorts of arguments?
3: I just don't think that's how people think. I mean, I, I agree the the argument with energy efficiency and suddenly you're sort of thinking, well, actually my personal energy bill has decreased because of all of these measures. Therefore, I can afford to put it back up. But you don't sit there thinking, it's okay, I've just seen a direct air capture plant go up around the corner. Therefore, the atmosphere won't care if I drive across the US in my SUV tomorrow. I I just don't think that that's how people work. And also, importantly, we're at that point where those risks are outweighed, I think, by the risks of climate impact. And so, The industry just has to be developed.
0: Ollie, how do you think about this problem?
4: I'm uh, I'm willing to believe worse of people than cat is. Um, (laughs) And so giving people reasons why they don't have to change anything seems to me to be not a useful way forward here when these technologies are hypothetical and limited.
3: But they're not changing anything and the technologies aren't available. So what makes you think that that's going to change?
4: We are changing things, Kat. We're just not changing things fast enough. Things are improving. I think this risk, often called the moral hazard risk, is a real one. But you have to reckon that there will be, you know, the world is full of badly motivated people. And some of those people will... Definitely see the existence of negative emissions, especially if they look like getting big and cheap, as a reason for, um, I was going to say taking their foot off the gas, but I'm going to say just leaving their foot on the gas instead. So, you know, the fact that moral hazard is real doesn't mean you can't do these things, but it does mean that you need to bear it in mind and try to find ways to ensure other parts of the process go on even while this technology develops. And that goes back to this point that the IPCC report makes about coordinated planning at many
0: different levels. We're deep into it on behavioral change. Kat, do you want to tell us just what the report says about changing people's behavior?
3: Yeah, so the report does look at, um, in fact, unusually, because the, the previous reports didn't didn't look at this in this level of detail. There's an entire chapter on demand-side reduction. And it basically comes to the conclusion that quite a lot can be achieved through demand-side reduction. I mean, it, it's it's in every possible sector, you know, switching to riding your bike instead of driving your car, etc. But it's very clear that there is a hard limit to what can be achieved with that and that you can't go around saying everybody needs to become a vegan. That's not going to save the planet. Ultimately, that's good. That helps. But it's not sufficient. Thanks,
0: Kat. Ollie?
4: Relying on everyone changing their behaviour is a bad idea. One of the nice things that the report points out is that it's easy to get people to do things that conform with the values they already have. And I just don't think, I don't think you can force other people to change their behavior very easily. You can nudge them in various ways. And I don't think you can just wait for everyone to agree with a specific green agenda about how to behave.
0: Thanks Kat, Ollie. One other way that you can change your behavior is to keep up to date on all things climate change by subscribing to The Economist. In this week's edition, you can read CAT's full analysis around the latest IPCC report, as well as a fascinating examination of Alexander von Humboldt's hypothesis that organisms closer to the equator are more colorful than those nearer the poles. Babbage listeners can get a special subscription offer by going to economist.com slash podcast The link is in the show notes. Coming up, we'll put all of this into the context of the energy crisis.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: The geopolitical picture has changed a lot since COP26. And the latest IPCC report on climate change has come amid concerns about energy security. I'm back with my colleagues from the Economist climate team to examine all of this. That's Environment Editor Katrine Brahek and Briefings Editor Oliver Morton. Oli, can you lay out for us how the energy transition is being impacted by Russia's war in Ukraine?
4: Yeah, everyone wants to have more better secure supplies of gas that don't come from Russia. Um, Some people also need better secure supplies of oil that don't come from Russia, and Russia is also a coal exporter. So lots of people who buy fossil fuels are freaked out by this. And although, as yet, the biggest customers for russian oil and gas have neither been cut off nor enacted sanctions of their own that's very much what everyone's thinking about and this is in some ways a very good case for europe to double down on a whole bunch of renewables but renewables as we know can't be the full answer to a lack of gas on a cold winter night they can mean that you don't have to use any gas at all during lots of spring and summer and autumn and so they can save on overall gas bills But they can't stop the reliance of the system on gas, and hence the interest in finding more sources of gas. So liquefied natural gas tankers are moving their destinations resolutely towards Europe. And people are talking about trying to get more gas out of some European fields, including the British fields in the North Sea.
0: Kat, what do you think about this?
3: I was actually going to turn the tables here, Vijay, because you you think about these things in great detail. And in my climate circles, there's a lot of conversation at the minute about whether or not the war in Ukraine is not an opportunity that's too strong and positive a word, but whether there are synergies between these two crises in kind of in the similar way as we had the conversations in the early COVID days, the sort of months after the pandemic went uh, global where people were saying, okay, there's massive economic disruption? Can that be used to accelerate the green transition? I'm hearing a lot of the same lines at the minute and a lot of concerns that the energy crisis might result in a doubling down on fossil fuel infrastructure just at the time as we're being told that's really what we can't have if we're going to meet these climate targets. And I'm just interested in you know, your conversations from a very energy perspective, do you see a tension there? Do you see synergies? What's your take on this? Uh,
0: Well, I've spent a a bunch of time in the oil patch lately, and there is something resembling a righteous sort of indignation at how oil and gas has been ignored, demonized, and now has been validated as necessary by the authorities. Oil and gas drillers are being asked to produce more urgently, please, in in the interests of saving Europe, in the interests of national security many kinds of fossil fuel infrastructure are long-lived. They can live for 10, 20, even 30 years. The new kinds of natural gas power plants that uh, Europe is planning now, in Germany, for example, is a part of the strategy in response to the Russian crisis to try to get off gas, ironically, by doubling down on renewables, but by using natural gas plants as a backup for when the wind doesn't blow, let's say. There is some talk of making them future-proof to be ready for hydrogen in the future. I'd like to know uh, who's going to pay for that, because I don't know any investors in the private sector that'll pay lots of extra money to future-proof investments without having some sort of compensation. Or if these are going to be made illegal or unattractive in 10 years when gas is supposed to go away, then how will those investors be compensated? These things have to be made explicit, and it almost certainly will have to be from the taxpayer purse, is what I assume. But that conversation is a hard one to have in this political environment, but it has to happen.
3: And that question of who pays and those difficult challenges ahead—I mean, those questions were there before, right? That's not new to the current gas crisis or the war in Ukraine, right? There was always this question of sunsetting fossil fuel infrastructure, using gas as a as a bridge, you know, a transition fuel, but not a long term fuel. I mean, I note that in one of the one point five degree trajectories in the IPCC, it says that to meet that target, gas needs to be reduced by 45% relative to 2019 levels by 2050. So that's still leaving quite a lot of gas. I guess I just wondered, how much has that conversation actually changed as a result of the war?
0: The key difference is that now oil and gas producers and investors in those sorts of technologies are being encouraged. And what we've seen actually running up to this period of time with the, the war was a revival in fossil fuel consumption. We saw last year increase in coal, gas, and oil use back to really pre-pandemic levels. And even American officials, the Biden administration, which had been emphasizing climate, is actually asking American shale drillers, please produce more so that we can save Europe. Please produce more natural gas and encouraging investors to support those companies. That sort of signal, you may just want them to produce for a year or two, But once you start producing, and especially once you lock in long-term infrastructure, it's very hard to take away that infrastructure because it's bought and paid for, or it has capitalization that has to be accounted for. That is, there are bonds, for example, that have to be serviced. And and so they're going to keep producing absent some form of regulatory intervention or banning them or confiscating them. And these are all things that no politician wants to talk about. But the reality is you're actually going to contribute to additional fossil fuel lock-in unless there are other policies that are taken.
3: Right. So unless we're willing to basically just take on the chin a degree of stranded assets and just, you know, decrease the lifetime of these investments relative to what they would have been before.
0: This is highly controversial. We have the example coming out of COP26. The Asian Development Bank, in partnership with some private entities, has come up with a scheme to try to accelerate the sunsetting of coal plants in parts of Asia, in Southeast Asia and so on. And so they're being given additional money in the short term so that they agree to shut down sooner than they would. This is going to save the planet in some way by reducing the total volume of greenhouse gases emitted. But they've come under heavy attack from those who say, I can't believe you're using public funds, in effect, development bank funds, to pay coal companies or people who own coal assets to make coal power in the short term, right? So on the face of it, it seems ridiculous and immoral and evil, but unless we come up with some form of creative ideas like this, you're going to have these plants cranking out a lot of greenhouse gases for years and possibly several decades to come. And that's why this world gets very messy. It's a political and uh, moral quagmire. Oli, your observation on this point? I think you've kind of
4: said it all, Vij. To some extent, it gets back to what seems to be my light motif for the day, which is this question of planning. How you, we don't have ways to plan how to gracefully retire assets that are still profitable. And it's a very hard thing for an economic system like ours to get its head around.
0: Now, Kat, in your reporting, you've been thinking about how this infrastructure challenge is going to play out internationally.
3: Uh, Yes, I have. In the run-up to the release of the IPCC report, I actually spoke to Rachel Kite, who is uh, Dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University in the States. And She speaks very eloquently to the many different dimensions of this crisis at the minute. And amongst others, uh, one of her concerns is not just how this impacts Europe, but how the situation in Europe right now could have very complex and deleterious impacts in the global south.
5: What you've got to make sure is that there isn't any medium-term installation of new fossil fuel infrastructure. And of course, the other part of this is the sort of justice piece of all of this, which is the EU's, you know, running around looking for gas while telling everybody else that they can't have it. And really, if in 2021, what we needed was this sort of massive investment in a commensurate offer of green infrastructure in developing countries to meet their energy needs and whatever, then we absolutely
3: have to have that now. And that's not on the table. We started off talking about the near-term crisis, the next winter. And I'm trying to to sort of imagine what that looks like. One trade-off is a short-term burning of coal at the cost of increased short-term CO2 emissions, but using the existing infrastructure. So, you know, there are more emissions, but that's a hit that humanity takes in the climate arena because it would take a much greater hit if instead it started investing in, as you say, more multi-decadal lifespan gas infrastructure.
5: The argument goes, and this is being ferociously debated now, is you have more coal now, but that Europe still meets its 2030 objectives because it will be now going fast forward with the installation of renewables and going much heavier on that. The other thing is extending the life of nuclear power, like the Belgians have indicated, but that's potentially important as well from an emissions perspective. And then we can build things quicker than we think we can, right? I mean, there are measures that governments can take to express things, and they're going to have to do that.
3: But there's obviously some very clear short-term imperatives and short-term needs, particularly in Europe, but Europe, US. If that leads to displacement elsewhere, then that creates short-term needs elsewhere as well. So it's not going to solve the displaced short-term issues.
5: So that's what the u n is very concerned about. So let's say you buy you know a bunch of gas that, that would normally go to Malaysia, Bangladesh, places like that, then what do they do? they they have to either pay swinging prices or they can go to domestic coal or they can go to coal from somewhere else, which may be potentially more polluting in the short term. Now, that's just the gas importing countries. Beyond that, you've got the fuel price spikes that you're seeing, and you've got countries with an extraordinary um, financial distress and who don't have foreign exchange, so can't afford to buy fuel. And we're beginning to see those rolling impacts of fuel prices and food prices and inflation. And it's beginning to look very, very, you know, um, dangerous for a number of developing countries and plays into this, tension already between global south and global north over over climate targets. We've let our current infrastructure stock and our dependencies go on for too long. We have underinvested in the rest of the world for too long. And when you have to execute a, a handbrake turn, it's a little riskier than if you just go in for a gentle Sunday afternoon in the car, right? And that's where we're at. So now we need you know, people who are very, very good drivers.
3: Yeah, I, I feel like that's been a narrative for a couple of decades, unfortunately. And I don't know what it is, what the comparison is, but, you know, the handbrake needs to be pulled ever faster every passing year.
5: Yeah, I mean, and, and we now have all of the facts at our disposal. We should have done a lot of things a lot earlier I and mean, with a lot more incisiveness, and we haven't. And that is not an excuse to sort of throw the tea towel up in the air and say, ooh, Ooh, you know, now we've got nothing to do except get on with it because now we've got a cataclysmic shift in power dynamics on the European continent with global consequences. There's just no way around this, right? So there's nowhere to look except at a massive infrastructure challenge.
0: Now, Keck, as we all know, there's a lot to do in this next phase of tackling climate change. But all of it comes at a cost. The recent IPCC report had some numbers on that, didn't it?
3: Yeah, this is a very contentious number. So the summary for policymakers says that basically what's known as the cost of mitigation, the cost of enacting climate policy is somewhere in the region of 1.3 to 2.7 percent of GDP GDP by 2050 for a two degrees target. But it's really important to bear in mind that that's what's known as the cost of action, and it's offset by the cost of inaction. So if you don't act on climate change, then obviously the warming increases, the impacts increase, and the costs as a result of that in terms of the cost, uh, damages from extreme weather events, healthcare costs, costs to the economy, etc., cost to agriculture and agricultural productivity, all of that increases as well. And the trouble with all of this is that there's a huge amount of uncertainty, right? You're trying to predict what the global economy is going to do in 30 years. And the models just aren't very good at making that prediction. The models aren't very good at uh, predicting financial crashes. The models aren't very good at predicting things like COVID. So you've got to bear in mind that That number, A, is really just the cost of policy, doesn't take into consideration how it's offset, and doesn't take into consideration basically how poor these models are at even trying to predict the impact.
4: To the extent that a number like that has any real use, it's that you would like it to be lower, not greater. But saying in absolute terms, oh, well, that's too expensive to do... There's just so much room for error before you get down to the moral issues of who's paying the costs and who's getting the benefits that, uh, you know, it's just a, it's just a non-starter.
3: And in fact, I spoke to some people in the run-up of the publication who'd argued against including that number at all because it's completely, in their view, completely meaningless. There were people who wanted the cost of inaction to be included there as a sort of comparison In the end, I think the the summary for policymakers says something fairly vague about um, it's likely that the cost of inaction will be greater than the cost of action. I can't remember the exact wording, but they sort of nod in that direction.
0: Yeah, and and, in addition to this, um, the offsetting costs of inaction, and some of those costs may not be only economic. I mean, lost societies, lost cultures.
4: Lost ecosystems. Lost
0: ecosystems, exactly. Um, uh, But we can also think of some of these costs... As costs of transition, that uh, ultimately, you know, may, we may very well find new innovations, new opportunities, new industries created of the future as well. History suggests that, you know, with energy transitions, we do see costs of transition, but often entirely new forms of economic models emerge that we can't put into the economic numbers yet. So, I would hold out the possibility as well that there could be a challenge to these numbers in the future. Um, with that slightly optimistic thought, I'm going to draw this podcast to a close. Kat, Ali, thank you very much for joining me today. It was great to get the band back together. Lovely to be back with you, VJ.
3: Thanks, Vijay. Always a pleasure.
0: And thank you for listening to Babbage. You can check out our podcast series to a lesser degree on your podcast app. In episode 3, called Going in Reverse, we looked at negative emissions in detail, including Katz reporting from Iceland, where she watched as the world's biggest carbon removal plant opened last year. Alok Ja will be back next week to discuss the future of nuclear power, which could help tackle both the energy and climate crises. He and our colleagues will ask, is there new hope for that troubled industry? Be sure to join Alok then. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin, and the show was mixed this week by Saul Rivers. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Vijay and in New York, this is The Economist.